The reading tonight is Psalm 2. You will find it in the Pew Bibles on page 543. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim and decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, (coughs) you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your way. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let us pray. Lord, as we look around our world, why do the nations conspire and people's plot? Our televisions are dominated by the effects of war, corruption and evil. Yet you, Lord, reign on high, watching as evil men lead themselves into destruction. Pour out your spirit, we pray. Lord, we think of Mosul and Iraq, and we pray for peace in war-torn lands. We pray that ISIS will return from their wicked ways. May the innocent people of Mosul caught up in the barrage of bombs and carnage find refuge in you. May they find peace and safety in coming to know Jesus as Lord and Saviour. Lord, we thank you for the many aid agencies and ongoing relief work that goes on, caring for refugees as they flee for their lives. Be with the relief workers, may they be your hands, showing love to people in great need. And Lord, we bring you the many victims of the Grenwell Towers disaster. And Lord, sometimes words fail. We thank you that the church has been such a shining light in that community in their greatest time of need. We thank you for our fire services who risked their lives. We pray for the many people mourning and grieving at this time. 
We pray for the many people who have been traumatized by what they've seen and heard. Lord, bring them comfort. Bring them peace and a real sense of your presence. Lord, we pray for the many terrorists that plot to reap havoc and destroy our nation. May their many plans be thwarted. Be with our security agencies as they seek to protect our country. Give them wisdom and discernment, Lord. And lastly, Lord, we bring ourselves. We ask for your forgiveness for our own attitudes, our thoughts, and our feelings. Let our lives refrain be. To live is Christ. To die is gain. Help us deny ourselves. Take up our cross and follow the Son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, Good evening, everyone. The psalm for this evening, as we have already been told, is psalm number two. You will find that on page 543 of the Pew Bibles, and I think you would find it helpful to have a Bible open in front of you as we reflect upon this portion of God's Word. While you're looking up the place, can I just say again what a privilege it is to be with you all uh, back in Bloomfield, also to renew fellowship with Damien. Uh, I don't think, Damien, you had short trousers when I first knew you, but you weren't much out of them at that stage, a little boy in Kilkenny. And it's been just lovely to see how God has put his hand upon you over the years and the many cycles, if you like, in life and uh, coming back here and also in exciting steps ahead. So we, we rejoice in that. But it's lovely to be with all of you. And now we come to God's Word. Let me just read the first verse. Uh, of this psalm, the first two verses that we've already been thinking of them in the songs. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against the anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. Let's take a moment to pray as we come to God's word. Father, one more time, we pray that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher And may your word yet again enlighten the eyes and refresh the soul and rejoice the heart for your great namesake. Amen. It was lovely coming in this evening to meet uh, someone from China. And uh, it takes me back to a time in Drogheda when a group of Chinese students came to the church. And uh, they had little knowledge of English at the time and even less knowledge of the Christian faith. And of course, I perhaps fondly imagined they were coming to church for my wonderful sermons. But when I asked them if they understood them, they said, we have no idea what you're talking about. They hadn't a clue what was going on in the church, but they came really for the cup of tea and the friendship afterwards, because it was the one place in the town where they had that kind of welcome, and then they would be invited out to home. So eventually, we invited them to our home uh, to have a meal together, but also to talk about what the message of the church was really all about. And I thought I would use a book that some of you may be familiar with, a simple little guide to the Christian life called Journey into Life. It's four pages, I think. Uh, The first page speaks about creation, uh, where the world came from. Then the second, why the world is messed up. And thirdly, what Jesus did on the cross. And fourthly, our response to the gospel. So I thought I would start with this group of students, five, five or six of them. 
and we began with page one, creation. And after I tried to explain that little pictorial first page, I said to the miss, do you ever wonder where this wonderful world, this wonderful universe came from? So they turned and they chatted to each other in Mandarin, and then they turned around to me and they said, nope. <laughs> and I was a bit flummoxed because clearly that was not a question that exercised them. So I wasn't quite sure what to do, and I thought, well, the only thing I can do is turn to page two. And there we looked at what it said there about the effect of sin in the world and why the world's so messed up, sin spoils, spreads, separates, I think is what it said. So I said to them, do you ever wonder why this wonderful world is so brutal and so violent and so awful? And again, they turned to each other and spoke in Mandarin, and they turned to me, and they all nodded in unison and said, oh, yes. And clearly that was the question that troubled them. Why is the world the way it is? Why is it in such a mess? Isn't it ironic that we are reputedly the most sophisticated generation in history, at least in terms of knowledge, of science, of technology? And yet, just in the 17 years of this century, we're only into a new millennium, a new century. We have had 9-11. We have had the uprisings in the Middle East and North Africa that we call the Arab Spring, leading to leader after leader being toppled, a brutal Syrian civil war in which over half a million have died. Uh, 11 million have had to flee, and they have joined uh, the worldwide refugee crisis of over 50 million people without a home. Almost 1 billion people go to bed hungry every night, more than at any point in history, even though there's enough food in the world for everyone. But for, because of greed and corruption and power-seeking, that food is not distributed. Over 2.5 million Young girls are trafficked across the borders of the world in the sex slave trade. We pride ourselves on having got rid of the slave trade, but there's another one uh, on the go at the moment. Or nearer home, south of the border in the Republic of Ireland, in the last 10 years there have been 1,000 homicides. That's two every week. And the Republic of Ireland is one of the safer countries in the world. So we're living in a very beautiful but a very brutal world. And the question is, why? Why is the world the way it is? Why are our lives the way they are? And that's the question that is addressed by Psalm 2, written probably around 3,000 years ago. Now, before we look at the psalm, and I hope you will look with me at it, it's really a poem or a song. Uh, three things to say about this psalm, just by way of introduction. It's what we call a Davidic psalm because the New Testament tells us it was written by King David, but actually it wasn't so much written by King David. We're told that the Holy Spirit spoke through his servant David. This is the Word of God. God speaking through his servant David some 3,000 years ago. But secondly, it's what we call a messianic psalm, and that means that it's not only about events in the time of King David, You'll see it's all about wars and fighting and so on. But you don't have to read the psalm very long until you see that it's pointing to a far greater king and a far greater kingdom. The subject of this Old Testament psalm is Jesus. He's called God's anointed one in verse 2. And you probably know that in the Hebrew language of the Old Testament, that translates into the word Messiah. And in the language of the New Testament, it translates Christ. So right in the very start of the psalm, it's pointing us to 
the Messiah or to Christ. And later on in the psalm, he's called God's chosen king, verse 6, and then God's son in verse 12. So this is all about Jesus. Indeed, the whole of the Bible is about him. The Old Testament pointing forward to him. Every little uh, laneway, every little path, every little road leading into every motorway, if you like, of the Bible, all joins up to point us to Jesus. But thirdly, it's a very modern psalm, isn't it? Because here in these four, you'll notice four stanzas, as we call them, or four verses, four snapshots using very poetic language, but explaining why our world is the way it is, not only then, but today. You could read this psalm in one hand and a newspaper in the other, and you would find them absolutely in tune with each other. So let's take a moment to look at these four different stanzas. First of all, verses 1 to 3. And here we begin with the scene on earth. And you'll see immediately it's one of turbulence and tumult, a picture of conspiracy, rebellion, violence, and war. Why do the nations conspire? Why do the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together. So it's a, a picture of turmoil of conspiring, of war. But who are they conspiring against? That's the question. Verse 2 tells us, against the Lord and his anointed one, saying, let us break their chains, let us throw off their shackles. Here we have a picture of a human race in rebellion against God and his Son and his word and his gracious rule in our lives. You'll probably know that this psalm is quoted a lot in the New Testament, and Acts chapter 4 reminds us that the supreme example of this rebellion is found at the cross when the religious and political leaders conspire together with the people. And they say, uh, together in unison, we do not want this man to rule over us. Is it not an amazing thing that when God's Son entered this world and fed the hungry and healed the sick and cleansed the leper and gave sight to the blind and caused the lame to walk and the deaf to hear, and the dead were raised. This human race, this sophisticated, this intelligent, this apparently tolerant, open-minded human race murdered him. They put him on a cross. They did away with him. And that deep-seated anti-God, anti-Christ spirit is alive and well in our world today. Whether it be in the beheading of Christians in Egypt by I.S., or here at home in the contempt of the media for those who would dare to uphold Christian values in the public place. We know that the leader of the Liberal Democrats had to stand down in the last few days because he found his position increasingly incompatible with being a Christian who believed in the Bible. And Jesus warned this is how it would be so. John 15, verse 18, If this world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. This world is tolerant of almost any attitude except the attitude or the opinions expressed by Christians who are faithful to the Bible. That's the scene on earth. That's the world in which we live. So the psalmist tells us not to be surprised. But now we move in verses 4 to 6 to the second stanza, and here we come to the scene in heaven. And here's a remarkable contrast between the chaos on earth and the quiet calm in heaven. If you like, moving from a scene of tumult to one of calm sovereignty. Notice the poetic language again, the one in heaven laughs. 
and says, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. Here, if you like, the focus shifts from the cross and what this world did to God's Son to the events that followed, the resurrection, the ascension, and the exaltation of Jesus to the highest place of authority at the Father's right hand. We've already had these words quoted, but let me quote them again from that lovely hymn, if that's what it is, in Philippians chapter 2. He took the form of a servant. He humbled himself and became obedient to death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him to the highest place and given him a name above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is seated on the throne of the universe as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. But we immediately might ask the question, if that is so, Why then is the world in such chaos? Well, the answer is that our world is a powerful illustration of what happens when, as Romans 1 tells us, God says to rebellious human beings, okay, you have it your way. We're told God handed them over to their own devices. The world is as it is because God has said to people like us, you have it your way. It's a mess because we have made it a mess as human beings. But thank God, Thank God that he has no intention of leaving it in that mess. And that's why we move on to stanza three. We've looked at the scene in heaven. We've looked at the scene on earth. And now we see, if you like, a foretaste or a prophecy of the advance of Christ's kingdom in the world. Verses seven to nine. Notice how it's God the Son speaking this time. And he's speaking of God the Father. And notice verse eight. He said to me, that is the Father saying to the Son, Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance the ends of the earth, your possession. Jesus has been given authority to claim the nations as his inheritance. And when Jesus gathered his disciples together and commissioned them in those familiar words, when he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go into all the world and make disciples of all the nations, and I will be with you to the end. It truly did seem like a mission impossible. They were small in number, They had no learning, an academic sense at least. They had no status in society. They had few resources. They'd never been outside their own province. They despised the Samaritans and the Gentiles to whom they were being sent. And they were fiercely opposed by a Roman state that sought to eliminate the infant Christian movement. Yet, in the power of the Holy Spirit, they testified with such effect that the church grew explosively. And very soon Christians became a majority in that Middle Eastern part of the world. And uh, very soon the Christian faith became the faith of the empire and ultimately of the Western world. And the gospel has continued to spread to the ends of the earth and will continue to spread to the ends of the age. Today the church has a, a foothold of the gospel, a foothold in every corner of the globe, among the poor and uneducated, among the educated and sophisticated communities. And while the church may be in retreat in Europe, it's growing rapidly in South America and Africa and East Asia. I'll always remember when I was a student at Queen's, uh, we got a magazine in those days which helped us to pray for the wider world. And I remember hearing news of Mao Zedong and the Cultural Revolution in China and gathering in little groups in little rooms around Queens, praying for the Christians of China because it seemed as though the church was about to be eliminated. 
Uh, Mao Zedong had expelled all the missionaries in the early 60s. He had imprisoned pastors. He had uh, banned Christian worship. He had closed church buildings. There were probably around 2 million Christians in China at the time. At least that's what uh, people thought. But 50 years on, Mao Zedong is long since gone, and today there are between at least 70, if not 100 million Christians in China, more, far more members of the Christian church than the Communist Party, and China has become one of the chief sending nations of missionaries to the rest of the world. But this psalm doesn't only speak of the advance of Christ's kingdom in the world, but it gives us the promise of his ultimate triumph. Notice verse 9. You will break your enemies with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces like pottery, which is really simply a poetic way of saying that the outcome of Christ's mission in the world is not in doubt. He shall reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The kingdom of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. If we're Christians here tonight, we're involved in a mission whose ultimate outcome is not in doubt. Stanza 3 is about the advance of Christ's kingdom in the world. But finally, we come to stanza 4, verses 10 to 12. And here the psalmist speaks of the response that is required of us. Again, speaking in poetic language, therefore you kings be wise, be warned. Serve the Lord with fear. And the language, or the version I'm reading, celebrate his rule with trembling. You can see that the question here that is raised is in relation to Jesus, God's anointed king. Are we for him or are we against him? Have we bowed the knee to him and do we confess him with our lips? Or do we continue in quiet rebellion, whether of apathy or inner resentment or complacency or making those excuses of unbelief that we human beings are so good at making as to why we want to hold off coming to Christian faith? But notice too here is an invitation held out. The gospel is not a threat, but it's an invitation. Notice how he puts it, be wise, be warned. God's Son does not come into the world to condemn us or to crush us. For at the cross, he established a place of pardon, a place where his enemies can become his friends, a place where rebels can become his sons and his daughters, where those who have treated him with apathy or contempt can now become his servants and share in the advance of his kingdom. So the gospel is an invitation to change our mind, to change sides, if you like, and what are the conditions? Well, verse 12, again using pictorial language, kiss the sun. Just an ancient way of saying, lay down your arms of rebellion. Bow the knee and give honor and homage to him. And notice the promise that goes with that in the last verse, how blessed are those who take refuge in him. A refuge, of course, is a safe place, a place of acceptance, a place of Forgiveness, a place of security, a place of welcome, a place of belonging and safety from judgment, a place where we join the very fellowship of heaven. That is his invitation to every one of us. Kiss the Son, bow the knee to him. 
But there's also a warning. Verse 12, there's a double-edged sword to the gospel. Is there not? If we refuse his gracious offer, he goes on to say, you will, it will lead you to your destruction. Verse 12, we will face him in judgment without a leg to stand on. In other words, we will not be able to find refuge from him on that day. That is why it is urgent that we find a refuge in him now. Or to finish, instead of running from him, the gospel invites us to run to him. And then go out into the world to serve the Lord with reverent fear. And as my version puts it, celebrate his rule in our lives and in the world and commend him to others. May God grant that that will be true for every one of us. Let's take a moment to pray, and then we're going to join in another hymn. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this lovely psalm that teaches us very clearly why the world is the way it is and why our lives are the way they are. But thank you that it's not a message of doom, but one of joyful hope through the gospel. Thank you, Lord, that it gives us understanding of our world, that it's bang up to date. And so, Lord, help us to understand it. Help us to obey it as we bow the knee to your Son, the King of Kings. And then, Lord, help us to leave this place to live joyfully and expectantly, knowing that he is seated on the throne and that all history is moving towards the goals that he has appointed and that in the name of Jesus every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Father, help us to play our part in furthering that great purpose. For your name's sake. Amen. Can I invite you to join with me as we say in prayer for each other the words of the grace. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen.